Amen. Give the Lord a hand this morning. All right. All right. Well, if you're ready to learn from God's Word from the book of Genesis, say amen. Amen. Uh, Rob Kroll, Rob, I have a friend named Rob Kroll, and I cannot stop saying that every time I say Rob. This is Rob Moore, Rob Moore, and he's going to be our scripture reader this morning. Welcome him as he comes up here this morning. All right. I see Rob every now and then. I saw you the other day. I don't know if you saw me. You're like Friday playing pickleball. That was me. Yeah, you were you were intensely into the game. Did you win? I don't know. You don't know how much game it was. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, Rob, read God's word for us this morning as you see it on the screen there, and y'all follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. All right. Genesis twenty-three one. Sarah lived one hundred twenty-seven years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kerath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before the dead, for his dead rather, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tomb. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of the sight, hear me and entreat me, Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Malkpala, which he owns. At, uh, it is at the end of the field. For the full price, let him give to me in your presence as properly, property for the burying, for <laughs> burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of my sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed before his people. For the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the place of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham waited out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights, currents among the merchants. So the fields of Ephron in Mechpelah, which is to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it. And all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property, property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right. Very interesting chapter there, and let's pray for God's help to understand it. So, Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We, we need your help. We need your help not just to understand this chapter. We need your help in life. Father, forgive us for constantly asking for help, but then we neglect your word that gives us life and instructions on how to live it. Father, forgive us for going through days and sometimes weeks without consulting you for the direction that our life has taken. Father, may our plans be your plans. May our goals be your goals. May we be willing to just scrap everything to follow you and just to do what you ask us to do and to follow in your footsteps and trust you that the outcome is better than we could have planned it for ourselves. Lord, this morning we surrender our lives to you afresh. We renew that commitment to you to be followers of Christ. Father, I pray that you teach us this morning. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes and our hearts 
to receive your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning we're talking about a burial. We're talking about a funeral. One time there was a small town where there was a guy in that town who was a bad dude. He was corrupt in his business dealings. He was dishonest. He was involved in all kinds of shady things. And then he died. And his two brothers came to the small church in that town that he did not attend. And they just said, you know, we don't have a pastor and our brother's dead and we want to do the funeral here and we want you to preach the funeral. He's like, oh, okay, all right, well, we do funerals here often. So yeah, okay, I'd be glad to do that. And he said, but there's, there's one condition here. We want you to say that our brother was a saint. And he's like, oh, um, man, I, I know your brother. Pretty much his reputation precedes him throughout this town. It's not a very big town, so word gets around. And man, I, I just can't say that. That's just, it's, it's not the truth. And they're like, you know, Pastor, you don't understand. You know, we know that your church is struggling financially and you've got some building improvements you want to make. We're willing to make a large sum donation to this church if you will simply just say, our brother was a saint. And the pastor's like, oh, he's like, okay, I'll do it. And so the pastor gets up and he's preaching the funeral. And he says, this man here lying here before you today was a liar, a womanizer, a dishonest man, and a, a, just a total wretch. But compared to his two brothers, he was a saint. <laughs> anyway, this is not that kind of funeral. This is a funeral for a very godly, faithful woman that... If, if there was someone preaching the funeral, would not be able to hesitate to say glowing things about Sarah. But if you consider what happened last week and what's happening this week, Abraham goes from almost losing his son, his only son, who was a young man that he was about to sacrifice. And he's like, then God says, no, no, don't, don't harm the child. And he's like, glad, you know, glad that's over with. You passed the test, Abraham. And now he goes from that emotional trauma to he actually does lose Sarah, the love of his life, married for approximately 100 years. Anybody have that anniversary going on this year? 100 years? No? No? Do you want to take us on that? <laughs> Not quite? Okay. Anyway, can you imagine being married that long? Of course, people lived longer back then. People stayed married longer back then. And so really, what a turn of events for Abraham here. So we're going to divide this chapter up into just three simple points. First of all, there's the morning of a lady of faith, the morning of a lady of faith. And then there's negotiating for Sarah's grave, which was a really bizarre chapter, but we can learn a lot from it. And then investing in the promised future. So there's three things going on here this morning. So Sarah, her name before was what? Anybody remember what her name was before God changed it? Sarai or Sarai, which means what meant bitter. She went from being bitter about not having kids to being the exalted princess is what Sarah means. And God actually incorporates his name, Abraham's name before was what? Abram or Abram, okay? And God puts the ah in there for Yahweh. And he puts his name in Sarah's name. And she wants him to be in Sarai to Sarah, to Yah. God made a covenant not only with Abraham, but he made a covenant with Sarah too. And in these, this culture, people didn't make covenants with women, but God does. God exalts women. In the Old Testament and New Testament, God exalts women to a place where culture does not. And so she was 127 years old, which is amazing. She's the only lady in the Bible who is honored by her age being mentioned at death. You know how in the genealogies it says so-and-so begot so-and-so and lived to 612 years, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and it mentions their ages in many genealogies? That's a way of showing honor to them. It's a literal age. Some, it's not figurative, it's, but it's also a way of saying uh, that they are a respectable person by mentioning it. Nobody else in the Bible, as far as females go, has their name, age mentioned. It wasn't done in that culture, but God's saying, hey, but I'm here to change the culture. I'm here to change the way that we treat women and how we show respect for them. Um, she stuck with Abraham through all of his ups and downs. Not just once, right? But twice, he lies about her and says, oh, she's my sister, and puts her in peril with these kings, Pharaoh first and Abimelech next, take her into her harem. Of course, God spares her and God's protecting for her. God was watching out for Sarah better than Abraham was. 
And these weren't the only mistakes that Abraham met. But Sarah stuck with him through thick and thin. She was a faithful wife. She was a godly wife. She continued to trust God even through her own ups and downs. Remember when she heard the word that she was going to be expecting when she was 90? And what, did she, what was her reaction? She laughed. And it wasn't laughter of joy. It was laughter of skepticism. Like, <laughs> how's that going to be? I mean, I'm an old lady. I'm way past menopause. And Abraham, well, you know, he's an old guy too. How is that even going to happen? But her skepticism goes to faith. And she sticks with God through thick and thin and her own ups and downs. Hebrews gives a great commentary on this. It says, by faith, showing that Sarah was a woman of faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive. You see, if Sarah did not exercise faith, none of this would have happened. God had his plan going on, but he also required that Sarah trust him, and she did. And when she did that, the power to conceive came into her life. And and that's just true of you and I. Faith It brings God's power into our life. Faith is not a power by itself, okay? As New Age teachers teach, you know, faith, and then people in the prosperity gospel teach that, you know, faith is a force and words are the containers of the force and all that just Eastern Hinduism repackaged for Western consumption. God is the powerful one. When we exercise faith in Him and His power, God puts that power into our lives and she was able to conceive, which was a miracle, And on one end of of the messianic line, we have a woman too old to conceive. And on the other end, we've got Mary, who hadn't even been with a man who was very young, and she conceives. And you see how God starts and ends this miraculous line with miraculous births. And she's held up as an example for all women and for men to follow. What's interesting is no other woman is exalted the way Sarah is. And, And when it comes to, like, Mary, the mother of Jesus, People go to two extremes. Sometimes evangelical Christians minimize Mary, and we want to stress how human she was and how sinful she was and how she needed a Savior. And yes, all those things are true, but she was highly favored among women, and she is an example to follow. And then when our Catholic friends go too far the other way, where she's the mother of God and she never sinned, and you've heard the phrase the Immaculate Conception or the Church of the Immaculate Conception, that's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Mary, how she was conceived immaculately without sin. And of course, we know that's not true either. You can go to two extremes with Mary. And, but Mary even is, if Mary was all those things, and I grew up Catholic, so I'm not Catholic bashing here, but if all those things about Mary were true, then Mary would be the one that the Bible says, hey, follow her. But it's only Sarah that said that she's as an example. And let me show you what the scripture says about the First Peter chapter 3. All this is, leads up to a description of Sarah. <clears throat> it says, likewise, wives... Be subject to their own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, if you have a husband who's not obedient to God's word, either not a believer or just not obedient Christian, that they may be one without a word, that you can win your husband over, whether he's lost or disobedient or both, by the conduct of the wife. And when they see the respectful and pure conduct, this is all describing Sarah. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, she didn't call him God. Lord just simply means sir. It's little l. She was respectful in the way to it. And let me tell you, parents, a good thing for you to do is in front of your kids, Say yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, to each other, and then expect that from them. And the the way that you respect one another is a great example for them. And Sarah was that way. She was respectful. And then Sarah, let me go back here. here, Sorry. And it says, and you are her children. All of us are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah faced some frightening circumstances, and yet she did not fear. She set an example for all of us who are not only the children of Abraham, Here the Bible says we're the children of Sarah if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. So then Sarah died. Death is never easy to deal with. If if, um, the Lion King is true and death is just part of the circle of life, then we should just go along with it. It's just... You know, it's just like the, the lion says to, 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 to Simba, 
you know, about the death and how, well, we eat the deer or the, the antelopes. The antelopes eat the grass, and then we die and go there into the ground and push up in the grass, and then the antelope eat us. So it's just the circle of life. It's just beautiful. Death is a beautiful thing. No, it's not. There is something deep inside of you that hates death. We don't love funerals. We, we despise it. Jesus, when Lazarus died, it, the Bible says he groaned, he moaned, like almost in anger against death, and he wept because we were not created to die. We were made to live forever. And so that's why we all grieve when someone dies. If it was something that was normal, just supposed to be happening all the time, we'd be like, oh, well, just go with it. But we can't. We're not meant to. And that's why Jesus came and he killed death by dying in our place. And he rose again so that someday we'll live forever and death will be no more. And that will be the new norm. That will be the way we go back to the Garden of Eden, the way we were created to live forever. See, God warned Adam and Eve, right? He said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely what? Die. So don't do it. <laughs> but we did because we're all stubborn. The wages of sin is death. Death is a consequence of sin. And so therefore, when sin is no more and sin is conquered and Christ comes and rules again on this earth, literally, and there'll be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more tears, and no more death. And then we'll be like, okay, this is the way that it's meant to be. And then she, she died in the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. She died where she belonged, okay? And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But the land of Canaan, remember, one of Ham's sons was named Canaan, and they were cursed, right? And God's going to take the, the land of the cursed people and take it back and redeem it, put it back in God's people's hands. That's what God specializes in, in taking things that are cursed. So let me ask you a question. This is something you need to really consciously think about. How will you be remembered at your funeral? You probably put off thinking about that because you're thinking, oh, I've got years and years to live. There's no guarantee. I think I've done more funerals, and I've done lots of funerals. I've done more funerals for people under 40 than I've done funerals for people over 40. There's a lot of people like, that have car accidents, suicides, murders, different things like that. Everything that can happen that could bring your life to an end quickly. But let's fast forward to that day. Not trying to be morbid here, but imagine it's your funeral. What will people be thinking about the person in the casket? Man, he worked hard. He spent a lot of time at the job. Is that, is that what you want him to say? You know, oh, he, had, he drove the nicest car. Man, did you see her house? She had an amazing house. Those are not the things that we really want said. I hope that's not what we want. But yet, what we're living for might contradict that. Do you want people to say, that person was as honest as the day is long? That person was so unselfish. She always thought of other people more than herself. He really loved Jesus. She knew her Bible backwards and forwards. Are those the things that you think might be said if your funeral was next week? Think about what the Bible said about Sarah. What an amazing woman she was. And these are the things that she's being remembered for at her death. Don't let that just bother you for a moment. <laughs> let it sink in. Let it be uncomfortable. I'm not here to give you a positive pop psychology message this morning necessarily. I want you and me, me especially, to leave here more like Christ, wanting so badly to be more like Christ than we ever than when we came here. That we would live differently so that if and when that day comes, that people will be able to give glory to God because of the way we lived. So it says that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah, and to weep. That's not redundant there. The word mourn there literally means to beat the chest and sometimes to even shred the clothing. He was physically shaken by the loss of his wife. Now, he had to know this was coming. She's 127, okay? But even then, you're not ready for it. And he wasn't. And, he, and then the word weep is referring to what people could hear. Mourn was what you saw. Weep is what you hear. And he, people could hear him wailing and crying. It's not just about tears. He was crying out loud over the loss of Sarah. 
He really loved her. He really did. One time I did a funeral for a guy um, that I did not know. The funeral home called me and said, hey, we have a family here that doesn't have a pastor. Would you be willing to do their, their funeral this Thursday? I'm like, sure. I go there, and I, there's only like eight people there. His wife, two sons, their wives, and I don't know who the other people were. And I went in, I went to the, the widow and said, I'm very sorry for your life. And she's like, hmm. And I shook the hands of the son, say, hey, I'm sorry that you, know, you lost your father. And like, yeah. And I, don't, I think one of them actually did say, whatever. And it turned out, I found out later, this guy was the most selfish, arrogant person that anybody knew. And pretty much everybody was glad he was dead. It was the weirdest funeral I think I've ever, did, I've ever done. And I, I preached the gospel, and I saw people like look at their watches, and I'm like, wow. This is, this is really bad. This was as an extreme. Nobody was mourning for him. Nobody was weeping for him. I hope that we can live differently. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a nice metaphorical way of saying passed on, that you may not grieve as those who do have hope, those who have no hope. The Bible does not say don't grieve. It just says don't grieve as those who have no hope. Even in our grieving, even in Abraham's grieving, it's different. It's different than people who don't know Jesus. Abraham knew Jesus. Abraham had the gospel preached to him by Jesus, according to Galatians. So Abraham is grieving, but it's a different type of grief. It's a different type of, of mourning. You, a book was written probably about 50 years ago about the five stages of grief where psychologists analyze the stages that people go through. And I'm not saying this is not true. Just stay with me here for a second. These are the five stages. You might be able to know these. Denial. That you just, I can't believe this is happening. I, I, and you wake up every day like, this, is he really gone? Is she really gone? One time I did a funeral for a guy in our church that died unexpectedly. And his daughter was 15 in my youth department. I was the youth pastor. And she went by and would not look at the casket where he's at. She told her friend, that's not him. That's not him. And she was in total denial. Now, denial can be in extremes, and that was an extreme case, but we can be in denial, like, this isn't happening. This is a dream. This is a bad, just a bad dream, and one day I'm going to wake up. And then there's anger, like, God, why? Why did you allow this to happen? And you can be angry at the person. Why didn't you take better care of yourself? I told you not to drive that night, or whatever it may be. You can be angry at God. You can be angry at the person. And then there's bargaining. God, you know, don't let them die. Or if they've already died, God, if you bring them back or you start bargaining with God, I'll go to church every Sunday if you stop this or take the pain away. And you start bargaining with God or with somebody out there. And then as it all begins to sink in, you start sinking into a depression. You get to where you can't function. You have this gray cloud hovering over you and it, it really affects your total mindset. And then the last stage is acceptance. You finally begin to accept it. Now, this is the way that people grieve. So I'm not saying this is not true. But you don't have to go through this process. What did the scripture say? That we grieve, but not as those who have known the hope. Should we be in denial? Should a believer who knows that death is real and eternity is real be in denial that any of this is happening? No. Now, you may struggle with it, but you don't have to get into full-blown denial. Should you be angry at God, who is sovereign and who loves you and has all of life in his hands? Should you be angry at him? No. Anger directed towards God for a certain length of time or for the wrong reasons could be sin. Do you want to bargain with God at this stage? No. Do you need to be depressed? No. Again, I'm not saying you won't go through these things. What I'm saying is you need to fight these things. You need to fight denial. You need to fight your anger. You need to accept and embrace the hope of eternity with Jesus Christ. If the person you love knew Jesus, then there's your hope that you will see them again. And if you know that and you believe in the blessed hope and the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all the saints who have trusted in him, then there's nothing to deny. There's nothing to be angry about. There's nothing to negotiate with. And there's no reason to be depressed. You can fast forward to stage five and just embrace it and accept it. 
And again, I'm not saying you won't struggle with these things. You will. That's what the flesh does. But don't say that you have to go through all these stages and full-blown every level of it, as psychologists would want you to believe. So then we go to the next thing here, where he's negotiating for Sarah's grave. He's negotiating for Sarah's grave. And Abraham rose up. And this word rose up means he got up off his face. He was flat on the ground crying and weeping. And he got up off the ground. And he, from before his dead, he was crying in front of Sarah, face down on the ground. He's, he's grieving for her. This is a great loss. Jesus wept. So there's no sin here, right? Jesus wept over Lazarus passing away. But he, there comes a time you have to raise up. And you have to move on. And you have to function. Abraham has a funeral to plan here, okay? And so he rose up and he said to the Hittites, now the Hittites are the people living in the land. Abraham is just a guest in the land. He's been a sojourner, which means he's a, um, a nomad moving about through the land, moving his flocks and herds to the greener pasture all the time. He's doing that by choice. We'll talk about why in a little bit. And he says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. I don't speak the same language as you. I may have learned your language. Obviously, he's communicating here. But I'm a foreigner here. I don't have like, oh, there's where my grandparents are buried. I don't have a cemetery to bury my family. I don't have that here. And so I'm asking for a favor. Abraham, like I said, never chose to buy property. Could have Abraham bought property? Yeah, he's loaded. Okay, He's won a couple of wars where he got the spoils of the war. He's very, very wealthy at this point. He could have bought property, and he didn't. Why not? Listen to Hebrews. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place. He came from the Ur of Chaldees. He went into a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He was waiting for the inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Okay? God often calls us to do things, to go places where we don't know all the details, but we still have to follow in faith, right? And so that's what Abraham does. He obeys. And by faith, he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, and he chose to live in tents as a nomad with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Four, here's why. Here's why he didn't buy property. Here's why he chose to chose a nomad, because he was looking for the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is who? God. He was going to go into the promised land knowing he was going to pass this on to his children, but he was waiting for God to do it. And of course, eventually, that Abraham never saw that city. That city will be the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation. And he knew that that would be the, the building that God would design and build its foundation. So he's waiting for that. That's why he chose not to buy property. And here he's going to make an exception. He's going to buy property only for one reason, a burial plot. So he says, give me an and this word give me doesn't like mean donate to me. It's like if you go to a restaurant and the waitress says, what would you like to have? And you say, oh, you know, give me the steak and potato. You don't mean, can I have it for free? <laughs> You're saying give me as in this is going to be a transaction. And you'll see later what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> uh, he says, give me the property among you for a burying place. I'm not looking to buy a place to live. I'm not looking to place for my flocks. I'm not looking for an investment property. I'm simply wanting to buy something to bury. This brings up an interesting su subject. Often I get the question, is cremation okay or should I bury? And this, what does the Bible say about that? Well, let me start with this. The Bible doesn't give a clear command saying you have to do one or the other. Okay? So what I'm going to give you is my interpretation based on biblical principles. Okay? <clears throat> All throughout the Bible, you see Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, all these leaders burying their dead. You see the pagans, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, and people, so forth, burning their dead. So through history, not just biblical history, but throughout the world, pagans in general tend to cremate, believers tend to bury. Now, that's the general principle. But there's no clear-cut command that says you have to do it. That's just what has been happening. In my personal preference, and everybody say preference, Preference is that you should bury. But if you choose to cremate, I'm not going to say, hey, over here in Second Opinions chapter 12, you're sinning. It's not there, okay? But the general trend, the general picture of respecting the body, the body that Christ will raise up, 
Because what did Paul say? This body shall put on imperfection. This, this mortal shall put on immortality. He's talking about the body he has. So when you see each other in heaven, you will recognize each other. You'll be better looking than you are today. Great. For some of us, that's a big blessing. But you'll still recognize me. I'll still recognize you because you will still be you. You will have your body. It will just be a glorified body. Okay? So, again, but if you cremate, if you get killed in an auto accident, if you get blown up in a nuclear war, whatever, God can bring all that back together to do what he wants to do because it's going to be a new body that we'll recognize. So, again, it's my preference. If you were to ask me my opinion, I would say burial is preferred. But if you choose to cremate, I'm not going to say you're a horrible person or you've done something wrong. It's, it's something you need to pray about. You and God need to decide. <clears throat> um, when people die, we need to pay respects, right? And then when we say at funeral, we're going to pay respects. We need to honor the life that they live. There, when I ever, whenever I preach a funeral, there's three things that I want to accomplish. Number one, I want to comfort the family and the friends. I'm there to give them comfort. I'm there to give them hope that you will see this person again if they knew Christ. It gets really awkward if I believe that they didn't. I just don't address the subject. I just say, hey, hey here's how you can see, you can live forever. I don't even address the person. I'm not there to you know, throw, cast shadows or say, hey, that person's in hell. That'd probably be the last funeral I'd be preaching for that family. Okay? But I don't also mislead or become dishonest and give them false hope or illusions to think that maybe they are when there's good reason to believe that they're not. So, I want to comfort the family. I want to honor the deceased, respect whatever they've done in life. But number three, most importantly, I want to glorify Christ. I want to exalt Christ in that funeral. Weddings, funerals, Sunday morning, everything, we're supposed to glorify God. And, and that is a perfect time to glorify God. I went to a funeral a couple of years ago of a young lady that died of a, a rare heart disease and, and uh probably like 20 years old, I guess. I don't remember. Not very, very young. The church was full of 20-somethings. They came in with all their piercings, their tats, their blue hair, their purple hair, all that stuff. And you could tell, you know, and again, I'm not trying to judge based on appearances, but it didn't seem like they all knew the Lord or whatever it may be. And this was a golden opportunity to share Christ. And, and the pastor talked about how this young lady knew Jesus, but never told how she became, came to know Jesus, never told anybody of the 500 and some people there at his funeral how to get saved. And, it was, and I knew this pastor knew better. He just told jokes about all the good times that they had had together and how she was so great and how she loved animals or whatever, just all kinds of stuff about her life. Pretty much glorified her, threw in a few Bible verses, and then just to thank you for coming today. I, I, I wasn't trying to be a Karen. Sorry, Karen, but Karen, <laughs> two Karens here. But I wasn't trying to be that kind of Karen. You guys aren't that kind of Karen. But I, I typed an email, and I just said, hey, I, I, I'm not trying to be mean or critical or whatever, but I know you know the gospel, and I feel like you really missed a golden opportunity. There was hundreds of young people there who did not know Christ, and I feel like you didn't do what you should have done. I said, I'm not trying to, I said, I've made mistakes. I'm not trying to throw stones. He actually replied with a very long, gracious email. I said, you know what? You're right. I blew it. And, and thank you for bringing this to my attention. And I thought, praise God for someone who actually receives constructive criticism. Because I knew that if I was in that same situation, I'd want to get the emails. Okay. <clears throat> and actually I'm supposed to have lunch with this guy uh, sometime in the near future. So funerals are meant to pay respect. And, and we do want to respect the dead. But you can go to a dangerous point to where you're idolizing the dead. I've told my family, again, this is my preference, don't come visit my tomb. I'm not there. Don't worry about being there on Father's Day or my birthday and putting on flowers. Now, if you do that, I'm not saying you're bad. I'm just saying be careful. You and I know people who are like, yeah, it's been two years, three days, and six hours since my mom passed away. It's like, how do you know that number? And it's just like, yeah, for Mother's Day, we were there. We said hello to her. and We put out balloons and flowers. And we were there for Christmas. We were there for Easter. It's like every holiday, they're going to a cemetery. And it's like, at what point does this go from respect to idolizing? Almost enshrining this person. And it's like, do you give that much glory to God? Are you there that regularly at the Lord's house and worshiping him as much as you're worshiping the dead? 
Again, I'm not trying to step on toes this morning. I'm just saying be really careful about how much you can't live without somebody because the truth is you can. You can live without anybody except for Jesus. I hope that when, when I pass away, my wife and kids mourn my loss, whatever it may be, I'm sad I'm gone, but they pick up like Abraham did. They raise up and they move on. Not that they forget about me, but they, instead of looking back, wishing I was still here, they look forward to when I will be here and the day when we'll be together. So be really careful about idolizing the dead. It brings up another interesting, ta- interesting about, uh, issue, tattoos. People say, tattoos, biblical, not biblical? I can't put, point to book, chapter, and verse says, you shall not. Now, the classic verse in Leviticus that talks about marking your body People can say, well, that's Old Testament, is this or whatever. But here's one thing that's really clear. It says, do not mark your bodies, who knows what I'm going to say, for the dead. And I think that's a very clear biblical principle. I know people, every time someone dies, they get a tattoo. And I'm like, hey, there's some weird connection there that I don't think is healthy, and I don't think it's spiritual, and I don't think it's Christian. If you want to get a cross on your back shoulder, great, more power to you. And I know people who have tattoos on their arm that they use it as an opportunity to bring up Jesus. Great, more power to you. I personally, my preference is I don't get tattoos. I'm not going to tell you you're a sinner if you do. But I think it's pretty clear you should not be getting tattoos for the dead. That skulls and things like that, I think it's unhealthy. And I don't think that's what Abraham would have done. I don't think that's what the Lord would have us do. But he says, it keeps repeating this phrase, out of my sight, out of my sight. And I studied, and I studied, and I studied, and I really don't know exactly what this means other than it's a metaphor for put them under the ground to where you can't see them anymore. And so I think that negates someone being propped up, obviously, someone being um, enshrined, something like that. He wants it to where it's out of his sight. Not that he's not going to remember Sarah, but he wants to remember Sarah up here, not right there. And I think that's healthy. You'll see that phrase, out of my sight, multiple times. So the Hittites answered Abraham and said, Here is my Lord, you are a prince of God. You know, they, they just found out recently that he was a prophet of God. Now they're calling him a prince of God. This is accurate. I believe that God's the king of kings, Abraham's his son, so that makes him a prince. <clears throat> and I want you to picture where this is happening. This is happening in the gate of the city. Remember, Lot sat in the gate. That means he's on the city council. So he's talking to the elders of the city who meet in the gate of the city, which is more than just a big wooden gate. It's a whole elaborate area, and it's pretty much city council. It's town hall. There's passers-by. They're carrying on business for the city there. And so Abraham goes to city council, if you will, and talks to the elders. And they're like, hey, yes, we recognize you. You're the guy who travels around in our area, and you've been really great. In fact, we recognize that you've got some spiritual connection with God. And they say, hey, you know what? Why don't you bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs? Okay. Now, this sounds super generous, but this is what happens, in, especially in Eastern culture. It's like this polite negotiation going on. We do this all the time. You know, you go to lunch with someone and says, hey, I'll get the ticket. And they go, no, no, you don't have to do that. Yeah, I'll do that. And then you start fighting over the credit card and whatever. And, and you say, no, really, I'll, I'll, let me get this. No, you get it next time. And you do this polite negotiation you know, but because you have to. If someone says, hey, let me get lunch, you say, yeah, please do. That would be like rude. You're supposed to negotiate, right? You're supposed to say, no, me, no, leave. You're supposed to be like Chippendale. No, after you, after you, right? It's just this polite negotiating going. So these guys are saying, hey, have a tomb. Just pick a tomb. Yeah, any of them, just pick your one and we'll just give it to you. They're not, they don't really mean that. You'll see why here in a second. He said, none of us will even withhold for you any tomb. Take my mom's tomb. I don't care. You know, to hinder you from burying your dead. And watch this. You will see this phrase, you're dead, repeated by both parties several times. I'll tell you why here in a second. So Abraham rose. So he's sitting there with city council. They're all seated. And they're like, Abraham, sure. You want a grave? Take, take him. Abraham rises up. He, says, he bows to all of them. He's doing the respectful Eastern culture thing. And he bows to the people of the land. That's said in contrast to Abraham, who was not a person of land. He was a sojourner. He's like, this is not my land. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My city is a heavenly city. But these guys were not believers in the heavenly city, not believers in God. They were literally people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead, there's that phrase again, out of my sight, there's that again, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a legal appeal for me on my behalf to Ephron, the son of Zohar. 
I don't just want any piece of land. I have already got one picked out of my mind, and it belongs to this guy over here. So if you would go find this guy and, and tell him, of course, I, Abraham may have known he was there, may have not. turns out he was actually sitting there amongst them, the city elders. And he said, if you're willing, would you do this for me? And, and he said that he may give me, and again, word give here does not mean donate. It's like when you're at the restaurant, you order something, hey, give me this steak, uh, the cave of Machpelah. <clears throat> now, what's interesting, the word Machpelah means the place of two doors or, or double door. And I believe the picture here is that Sarah enters this door, but it works both ways. She will come out this door. And it's a beautiful picture of the, the, what this name means here. This, is, this, this grave will have two doors. She's not going to be locked in. She's going to come out. <clears throat> and he said, and I tell you what, I will give him full price. I will pay retail, okay? So just give it to me in your presence right here. Let's make it a legal deal here at city council on my, as the elders meeting for as a proper, proper burying place. Now, Ephraim was sitting amongst the Hittites, so he did happen to be there. I don't know if Abraham knew that or not. And it says, Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites. He's making this a legal proclamation. He said, all who, all who went in at the gate, city, uh, I'm sorry, all who went in at the gate of the city. So now a crowd is formed, and all the people are coming in and out of the city and out of town, doing business, whatever. They're starting to say, hey, what's going on here? So not only is city council listening, there's a crowd that's forming. Everybody's hearing this transaction happening. And he says, no, my Lord, hear me. I'll give you the field. In fact, it, but Abraham didn't ask for a field. He asked for the cave to bury it. And he says, I'll, I'll give you the field and I'll give you the cave. I'll throw this in. Now, that seems super generous. He just wants a cave to bury her in. But he's saying, you know what? I'll throw in the, the acre of land that's connected to the cave. Again, it sounds like a generous donation, but here's the thing. If he gave him the cave only, there's no taxes on caves. You can't plant corn in a cave. You can't do anything with a cave. <clears throat> and it means Abraham's walking on his land every time if he wants to go visit the, the grave. Every time there's a funeral and he wants to bury any of his family members there, and when Abraham himself dies, he's going to be buried there. It means these people are walking on my land, and I could dump that land anyway and not have to pay taxes on it. So if you're going to take my cave, take my land, and you pay the taxes on it. That's what he's doing here. Watch, you'll see why here in a second. He said, do this in the sight of my sons, my people. He said, I'll give it to you. And he, again, he's just being polite. I'll get lunch. No, no, you get lunch. So Abraham gets up and he bows before everybody again. There's, it's like a legal proceeding going on. He's paying respects. He's being humble about it. And he said to Abraham in the hearing of the people, so everybody's witnesses here, but if you will hear me, you no, know, listen to me, I'll give you the price of the field. Okay, I was wanting a cave, but I'll tell you what, I'll pay you for the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. You keep seeing this phrase, bury the dead, bury the dead. Why? If Abraham did what normal people do, have done, he would try to preserve the body and make it back to his homeland and have a burial there with his family, his friends, everybody. But he's got to do it quickly. The body's not getting any better, okay? It's, getting, it's decaying. So he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, no pun intended. He's He's like, he's got to do something quick. In fact, if he had gone back to Ur, he probably would have buried her for free on his family's land. So he's paying a big price here for this land, as you'll see. They know he's in a tough situation. It's like when you go to the airport and you have to buy a last-minute flight. Is that flight going to be cheap or expensive? It's going to be expensive. What do you think this land's going to be? They know he's got to bury soon. His land is too far away. He's determined to bury here because this is now the new future home of where they will be. And so Ephron says, my Lord, he's being respectful. He's playing the game here. He's doing the dance. He said, a piece of land for 400 shekels of silver. And all of a sudden, now he's throwing out the price. Wait a minute, 400 shekels of silver. You see several other times in the Bible when land is bought, and it's not near this price. This land was worth approximately 40 shekels which if you put it in American dollars, it was about $5,600. $5,600 for an acre. And he says, no, not 40, 400. He said, sure, $56,000, no problem. This is an expensive piece of land. He, he knows Abraham's in a bond. A lot of people read this passage. In fact, as I was studying and listening to different people, everybody's like, oh, these guys were so generous. Like, here, we'll give you land. No, no, I'll pay for it, whatever. No, no, no. This was like, this was this uh, nasty, nice negotiating. So it's been estimated that the land was worth about 40 shekels, which would be $5,600. Ephron is asking 400 or 
$1,000. He knows he has Abraham over a barrel, if you will. So he said, this is what he says. Oh, hey, it's just a piece of land. It's only worth $56,000. What's that between you and me? We're friends, right? What's a piece of land? You know, go ahead and bury your dead. Clock's ticking, Abraham. Go ahead and bury your dead. You see what's happening here? It'd be kind of like if I said, hey, uh, I'm moving this weekend. I, I need a truck. Can someone help me out with a truck? And Dustin goes, good to have you here, Dustin, by the way. Dustin says, hey, Gary, borrow my truck. Sure, yeah, really, can I do that? No. Oh, I tell you what, you know, why don't you just go ahead and buy my truck? I'm like, okay. Again, remember, Abraham didn't ask to buy a piece of land. He wanted a cave. He said, well, here, have buy my land. I'll give it to you. Next thing you know, he'd turn around. And it's okay, well, sure, Dustin, I'll buy the truck from you. Okay, Gary, $60,000. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah, well, what's $60,000 between friends? Here you go, just have the truck. And then, but he's hitting at the price, and then he wants me to buy it. And that's what, this, that's what Ephron's doing here to Abraham. This is where Abraham would make a counteroffer. Okay, get up and bow and say, Ephron, no, that's so generous of you. $56,000, I understand. But if you will, my Lord, you know, be polite to me and make me a better deal. I'm kind of in a rock and a hard place. I tell you what, I'll give you 40000 This is where Abraham should have played the game, negotiating. In fact, if you ever travel to the Middle East or even to Mexico, They'll give you a price that's really high. And you're supposed to say, no, no, this. Okay, well, no, this. We'll meet in the middle. And you play the game. And that's what they're doing. But Abraham doesn't play the game. Watch what he does. Abraham listened to Ephraim. He accepted, listened to me and he accepted the deal. And he immediately weighs out to Ephron silver. And these aren't in coins. These are in blocks of silver. They didn't have coins at this point in this culture. And he said they blocks of silver and he named it in the hearing of the Hittites. He's like, you all are witnesses. He said... 56,000, here's the silver, and watch this, 400 shekels of silver to the weights of the current among the merchants. I'm not even going to play the game, well, this is, what four, this is what a shekel is in my country. No, no, we're going to even use your current fair market trade value in your culture, and I'm going to pay you everything to the fullest amount. Why did Abraham overpay? He purposely overplayed. He didn't play the game. He didn't negotiate. Here's why. Abraham, remember the king of Sodom? How Lot and all the all them people got taken away by an army and he went and rescued them. And that king's like, hey, thank you for rescuing me. Let me have the people. You keep all the goods. And Abraham says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. He says, not that I would take a thread. I don't even want a sandal strap from you. And I don't want anything that's yours. I think there's a little almost animosity here. Lest you should say, oh, I made Abraham rich. I don't want anybody saying, that you made me rich. You cut me a deal. You gave me a discount. I want everybody to know that I'm wealthy and I'm blessed by God. And that I, all this has happened because I'm an obedient to God, not because anybody's been cutting me a break or giving me special favors. In Matthew 5, 41, Jesus says, if anyone forces you, and anyone is talking about if Roman soldiers, by law, a Roman soldier passing through a town could say to you, hey, carry my, my gear. And you have to, by law, carry it out of town for one mile but no more. And the Jews hated it because they were treated rudely. They're having to carry this bag by the people, the soldiers that are oppressing them. And you know that when they got to that mile marker, they're like, off with you. I'm out of here. Jesus says, you know what? Why don't you go an extra mile? And imagine being in that situation where like you're a 17-year-old boy and you're carrying this heavy gear for this Roman soldier while he's kind of taking a break and he's going to his next outpost. And you get to the mile marker and you keep walking. He's like, hey, what are you still walking for? I'll just keep walking with you another mile. I know I'm only required to do one, but let's go another mile. Let's keep talking. And that Roman soldier's jaw just drops. Like, what Jews does this? All the other Jews I know, like, put my bag down and spit at me and walk back. But this is what we, we say in our phrase here, going the, what, extra mile. And so here, we're not supposed to just walk one. We go the extra mile. We walk two. And a lot of people give that phrase in business, the extra mile, don't even know it comes from the Bible. There's a lot of stuff that actually comes from the Bible. But we as Christians are called to go the extra mile, to do more than you're asked to do. Show up, work, show up to work a little bit early. Stay a little bit late. Work through your lunch. Do what you got to do. Go the extra mile for your friends. If they ask you, can you borrow your truck? Give them your truck and stay and help them load the boxes. Go the extra mile. Do things that Christians do that show that we are different. Not because we're better than them, but because our God is greater. And that's what we're all called to do. And this is what Abraham's doing. He's going above and beyond 
so that nobody could ever say, oh, well, see that grave over there where Sarah's at? Yeah, we gave that to him. Well, we gave him such a great deal. No, he overpaid for it on purpose so that he could say this is what God is doing. In Colossians, it says, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach. Above reproach means that nobody can even question your motives. In all of your business dealings, in your paying your taxes, in how you take care of your property, we should be way above the rules that we're going above and beyond and going the second mile in all our dealings so that people can give glory to God. So we saw the morning, uh, morning a lady of faith negotiating for Sarah's grave. And then we come to the third and final point here, investing in the promised future. You see, he wasn't just buying a grave. He was making a down payment on the promised land. So the field, again, he, all he wanted was a cave, but now he's getting a field of Ephron and Machpelah, means that the two doors, which was east of Mamre. Remember, Mamre is where he built a temp, uh, a, an altar to worship God. So this is near that. And then the field with the cave that was in it. And all the trees. So there's all this going on, all the pieces, all, thing on the property in the field throughout the whole land was made over. Made over means it was legally transferred into Abraham's name. I'm sure if there was markings on the property, they went there and changed the markings or whatever they had to do, but the legal transaction took place. Now, you didn't think you'd get through this without a chiastic structure, okay? Usually have them at the beginning, but here's at the end, and this is important. I almost didn't do any of this, but you see that whenever you read the Bible, it seems like it's really repeating itself. Why is it doing that? It's because of the poetic structure here. In verse 17, it talks about the field, east of Mamre, the field with the cave, and how it was made over. And then it goes down to verse 19, the field, east of Mamre, the field, the cave, made over. Okay? And then if you work your way to the middle, it's bringing us to the main point. Abraham as a possession, and then Abraham, when he's burying Sarah, so you see his name repeated. And in the exact middle of this is in the presence of the Hittites and before all the city of gates, who sat in the gate. It was the main point of this story was that all the lost people could see what Abraham was doing. That's the main point that God wants us to see. So let's talk about that. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light, everybody say light, your light shine before others, talking about non-believers, so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father in heaven. Every single one of us are called to live a life that is different. A life that goes the second mile, that puts in the extra effort. Not so that people can look at you at your funeral and say, oh, you're amazing, but they say, wow, the God that they served was amazing. We're called to be different. Abraham did all this, and the chiastic structure there was so that they could see this in the presence and that they could, they could visualize what was happening and see that he was different. First Thessalonians, the verse we read earlier, it says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command. This is what we're waiting for. This is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. This is called the rapture. Rapture means the taking away. And it says the cry of command with the voice of the archangel. Mike, uh, Michael the archangel will, will call out and say, come up here. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. And who? The dead in Christ will rise first. So Sarah is going to rise. Think about that cave in that part of the Middle East where she's buried, she's going to rise. All the dead in Christ, people that you love, will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught together with them in the air. And so we call together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Is that true for you? Do you know the Lord? When Christ comes again and calls all believers, he's not calling everyone. He's only calling those who have been born again, who have been saved, to meet him in the air and to always be with him. You can travel to the Middle East today and see the, the, the cave of Sarah. Now, it obviously has bars in it so people don't go there. But I think someday when the trumpet sounds and Jesus says, come up here, Sarah's going through those bars somehow. You know, she's going to break them out and she's going to come up and we're going to be caught up together with Sarah because she knew the Lord. Abraham knew the Lord. Do you know the Lord? Do you have that hope? It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we believe, doesn't mean you just believe it happened. The word believe here means to trust in, to rely upon, since that is your only hope, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose again, 
And even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you know Christ? I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, if you would. I'd like to call upon all believers in Christ to pray that God would open hearts and minds this morning. But if you're not sure, I'm not asking if you've ever been baptized. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not asking if you go to church, if you read your Bible occasionally. I'm not asking any of those things. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to him? And does your life show it? Maybe you made some decision at vacation Bible school when you were little or at camp or something like that, but you really didn't know what you were doing. That's not being saved. Is your life different? Have you been born again? Father in heaven, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for the example that he gave to us, but so much more, Lord. He gave us eternal life for all those who would repent of their sins, turn away from everything they have, and give it all to you, and to trust what you did on the cross, how that you died for every sin we've ever committed, so that we don't have to pay that punishment. You've paid it for us. On your cross, you said it is finished, paid in full. You paid the price. But you not only died on that cross, you were buried. And on the third day, just as you said and just as you predicted, you rose again. And Father, that's not just a story. That's not just a, a myth or a legend. We believe it to be historical fact. And that he is our literal Lord and Savior, the risen Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here today, I pray that doesn't know you. I pray today they'd put their faith in you and make the decision to, to accept that gift of salvation you offer and pay for all their sins and and be forgiven. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. <clears throat> so if you made that decision, I'd love to talk to you about that. Or maybe you have still questions like, yeah, I, I think I understand, but I want to know more. Text me or call me. I'd love to have a conversation with that, that, you about that. And let me ask you, who do you know that would benefit from hearing a message like this? Maybe you wish, you're wishing they were sitting right next to you. I, I want you to just, I want to challenge you to pray and invite them. Any Sunday, especially Easter Sunday, with that coming up, it's a great opportunity most people who are invited to an Easter service say yes, contrary to popular opinion. And you could use that, that card to invite them with the, the QR code on the back. All right, Amanda, would you like to help me with question and answer session? There's my cell phone number. You can text in that question anytime. If you haven't normally sent a question, why don't you do that today? That'd be great. And it uh, looks like there's some waiting for us. That's great. Um, there's a long one for you to start us off. So y'all start... Texting those questions in, and go ahead. At the beginning of the Jesus Revolution movie, Chuck Smith wants nothing to do with the hippies and seems in despair about how bad things are in the country and how divided people are. Revival comes when God opens his heart and empowers him to welcome the hippies into his church. With so many parallels today to the sin and division of that time, what should the church be doing and saying? Who are the present-day hippies that are searching for truth in all the wrong places but see our church doors as closed to them, and how do we reach them? That's a great question. By the way, how many of you saw the Jesus Revolution, the movie? Yeah, it was excellent, excellent. Uh, I don't agree with everything on it, but what movie do you agree with everything on? I mean, um, but um, so who are the hippies of our day? Um, it's interesting throughout history. Some people are calling what's happening right now the fifth great awakening in America. Every previous great awakening has been when the country was, everything was going downhill fast. And so for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And every time the country goes down, it seems like a revival comes up afterwards. And so you see the Asbury revival. You see revivals happening on college campuses. Texas A&M, you've seen that, what's been happening up there. Every night for like six, seven hours, you got students praying and asking God to bring revival to their campus. You see this happening all over the country. The news isn't going to cover it too much because they don't like it, but what happened in 1971 and 72 was such a big deal that Time Magazine put on the front page the Jesus Revolution. And there were a lot of hippies that did come to Christ. And so the part of the question is, who are our modern-day hippies? Um, it's pretty much the whole woke crowd, LGBT, all those things, the sexual revolution. You see that, and they probably don't see themselves as welcome here. In fact, they say a lot of things about us that aren't true. The, the hatred is being fed. Uh, how many of you know um, Ray Comfort, the guy who does street evangelism, the way of the master? So they published a bunch of stuff on the internet about him, about how he's worth $20 million. He's not. He's not even close. He lives in the same house he's living in. It's a small three-bedroom house in California. They said that him and his wife got divorced 15 years ago. They've been married for 50 years. They just said a whole bunch of flat-out lies about this guy 
who just tells the truth and preaches the gospel in the streets. So don't be surprised that they will lie about you. In fact, I saw an interesting online debate between uh, this guy who's a conservative Christian and this girl who was an outspoken lesbian and all that stuff. And they got to talk, and she goes, you're not the monster they told me you were. And he's like, yeah. And she said, I, I appreciate your time. She even gave him a hug after the conversation. So you're being portrayed one way. And you know what? Honestly, sometimes they're being betrayed another way too. And so we need to be prepared that, that that's going to happen. It has happened. Uh, how many of you remember in Bouncetown when we had a lesbian couple come into church with four kids? And do you remember that happening, okay? It was very obvious what it was. And, uh, and man, you guys were amazing. Nobody batted an eye. Nobody gave a look or stare. Everybody went up to them, shook their hands, said, hey, we're so glad you're here. Loved on their kids, gave them uh, you know, great, warm, very warm, friendly welcome. We all knew that their lifestyle was different, but everybody embraced them. And later that afternoon, I had a phone conversation with one of them, and they asked, you know, is your church LGBT friendly? And I said, well, it depends on what you mean by friendly. I said, I think you experienced the church was friendly this morning, right? She said, yes, it was very friendly. Your people were great. I said, if friendly means we condone your lifestyle, the answer is no. I said, but there's a lot of lifestyles in our church that people are coming from bad backgrounds and brokenness, and we're not condoning. We're saying, hey, let's work through this together. And they said, well, we appreciate your time, but we're looking for an LGBT-friendly church. So they didn't come back. But I, did, I didn't compromise. I told them the truth. We, we, don't believe, we believe that God created, just like Jesus says, male and female, one woman for one, one man for one lifetime. And that that's what we believe. We believe the Bible is true. I said, you know, but anyway, so it was good. And I, we've had that question come often. So let's walk through that scenario. Let's say someone comes in and who is obviously from a different lifestyle. What are we going to do? We're going to love them, we're going to embrace them, we're going to accept them, but I'm going to preach the truth and you're going to live the truth and we're not going to apologize for it, you know? Um, and so we need, but we're not going to wait till they come here. You need to have lunch with them. You need to have coffee with them. You need to have them in your home. And I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about anybody who doesn't know Christ. You need to be a friend of sinners just like who? Jesus. Jesus was the friend of sinners. So that's what we need to do. Great question. Um, what are your thoughts on the things on the news about drug cartel and people being kidnapped in Mexico, fentanyl, and who really needs to fix this? Right. Uh, it, you can't, we're told to avoid politics, but you can't. I mean, uh, but there's a reason the borders are open now. It's because they hope that's a voting block. That's all, all it is. And, and, it, and it, just to... To stop people from coming to the border is considered racist. But you know who's mostly against the open borders? Mexicans who have come through the process legally and are here legally are like, hey, I had to do all this paperwork. I had to pay thousands of dollars, and now they just get to walk across? And that, that, that's not fair. But if it was just people saying, hey, we're starving down here. Can we come over? I'd be like, yeah, but it's not. You all know what a coyote is, right? Coyotes, these people who, go ahead, Andrew, what's a coyote? They help you across the border for a price. They're like, here, carry this backpack full of meth or fentanyl or cocaine and, or whatever. You carry it across, and I'll lead you the way, and I'll help get you across. So there's always a price. There's always backpacks full of drugs. There's a price to pay. And there's always, you, almost always people, girls, boys, being human trafficked across. It's not just about, oh, we're down here starving. Can we come over? Yes, there are some of those people. But it's about the cartel controlling the border. That's the problem. And, uh, but you know what? Don't look to the Republicans to solve it. And don't look to the Democrats to solve it. It's not going to happen. Just pray that Jesus comes. And until he does come, tell everybody, legal or illegal, about Jesus. That's what you do. You just love on everybody. And you just share the gospel with everybody. The government's not going to solve the problem. I wish they would, but we've seen that. I've been, a lot, I've been voting since I was young. And every time you think your party's in power, things get better, it gets a little bit better. But the thing, we're doing this. That's what we're doing. And every time we see a blip, we celebrate, yay, but just followed by a deeper blip that goes down. So um, it's an opportunity to share the gospel. That's what it is. And there's people, missionaries going down to the border, sharing the gospel with people coming across. That's what we need to pray for. If Christians are not supposed to process through the five stages of grief, what are actionable steps we can take to process a great loss? So as each stage comes along, denial, 
You say, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? I, I don't have to deny what's happening. I can accept that God is in control, that all things work together for good to those that love God. So I'm going to believe that even though my wife died at this age, I'm going to accept that, that God somehow is going to use this for good, right? And so we just have to trust God's word. So you get to the next stage, denial. What's the next one? Uh, anger, no, uh, bargaining. Yeah. Bargaining. So you say, you know, bargaining with God, is that biblical? Should I do that? No, it's not biblical. God's in control. The only bargain is God, here's my life. Take it. No, I don't, you name the price, blank check. Uh, anger. You know, you process anger. You don't deny it. David is angry in the Psalms. Man, he just writes all kinds of stuff in the Psalms. But then he always comes around to, but God, you are good. You are the one who inhabits the praises of Israel. I trust you. After he goes on his long rant about how angry he is, then he always comes out with, but God, you are good. So you go through each process, drives you back to the word. Okay. Anybody else have a question that you didn't text in? All right. Good deal. Um, Let's stand and... uh, Matt, if you could go to the benediction scripture for us. All right. Good to be in God's house. Amen. Amen. Let's read number six, verse 24 together out loud as a blessing over one another. Ready? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you all.